0: Continuing in our Rolling Stone series this morning, and uh, just as during the worship set this morning, I just, you know, you just really feel in some worship sets that God is just trying to say some stuff, you know. And so this morning, you know, just feeling that God was just, uh, just through that, just saying that there is hope. There is hope. There is hope. There's hope for you because Jesus is near, Jesus is close. You can never get so far that you're so far away from Him that he can't come and because like you just saw in that video that the stone was rolled away that there is hope. And so whatever you find yourself in today, there's hope. And uh, and that leads into what we're going to talk about today. So we've been going through this series and we're at part number three and we've been talking about what entombs us, the things that entombs us. And last week we talked about a really heavy topic called about the tomb of depression and what it takes to get out of the tomb of depression. Well, today uh, we're not relenting. We're probably going even heavier today. Um, and so uh, uh, I apologize right up for you. But we're going to talk about money today. Um, and it's that subject, when you say money, everybody's like, <gasps> the pastor's talking about money, you know? We're, we don't like the pastor talking about money because we don't like to talk about money in church. And we're going to find out in a moment why we don't like talking about money in church. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about money today. And, um, and 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 the reason we need to talk about money in church is because Jesus talks about money more than most of the subjects that we talk about in church. Uh, and Jesus had a lot of stuff to say uh, about money. Uh, uh, and we live in a world where money talks, right? Money talks. If you have money, you can go places that other people can't go, like Disney World, right? I mean, if you have money, you can do things that others can't do. Money is desired in this world, and it's what a lot of people talk about, uh, and, and it probably consumes a lot of your guys' minds' money. Now, I, I, was, uh, I was reading this article a couple of weeks ago, and it fascinated me of a Netflix movie that's going to come out about this girl. It's a real-life story about this girl who is in prison right now and she's awaiting trial because she came to New York. Her name was Anna Delvery, and she came to New York and she conned everybody that she met that she was a billionaire's Heiress. So she was about to get a bunch of money when I think it was like her grandfather who was in Germany was about to die. And so she went on this uh, journey trying to get through uh, the, the, the ranks of new, being a New York socialite, right? Those are the people who just don't do anything, just party all the time. Well, she built herself up that she started getting a name known for herself. That everybody in New York started to know her name. Her real name actually was Anna uh, Sorokin, but she went by Anna D'Alvray. And she uh, rented out this penthouse. She went uh, on trips and she paid for everybody. Uh, She would go to restaurants. She would pay for you and everything. And she got into places that the majority of people couldn't get into because everybody thought she had money. Now, it was amazing how she paid for this stuff because she actually didn't have any money at all. So she was loading herself up with credit card debt, and then she walked into a New York bank one day, and she convinced them that she was uh, an heiress to a billionaire, and the bank lent her a loan for, I think, $150,000 unsecured because they believed her. This is how much she conned them. And then she used that money to pay her hotel bill to convince everybody that she was this, this person who uh, had lots of money. And it's amazing where she got to. And I was even uh, watching another movie last night uh, because I love these scam things. Like it's amazing how people get scammed. Something called the Fire Festival that happened a few years back uh, in the Bahamas. And all these people got conned. And uh, this guy was way over his head. And, and it was all to do with money. See, it's amazing the places that money will take us and what money will do. Why is it that money has such a hold on people? Why is it that m- people are so consumed by money all the time? And, and, and all that we do centers around money uh, a, a lot of the time. A lot of you, this, uh, this uh, leading up from January or maybe February to April, you were looking forward to tax time. Because normally you get a nice little refund that comes, you know, and, and it helps maybe pay some things off for you, maybe pay some credit cards or, or, or maybe some things that you can buy. And then when you did your tax return, you made TurboTax do a second check. And maybe you took it to an accountant because it doesn't seem right because you weren't getting the refund that you normally get. Or you didn't get a refund and you owed and suddenly the anxiety came upon you and you're like, what happened? And you didn't realize there was tiny little bits more in your pay at all last year. But what happens is suddenly the anxiety comes over. We were expecting something and we didn't get it. And suddenly it's like panic sets in. It's like, I don't have as much money as I thought I did. Well, Jesus has a lot to say about money. So we're going to start in one of the most famous passages that Jesus uh, talks about money. And so if you have your bibles if you want want to turn to Matthew chapter uh, 9, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and we're going to read verses 19 to 24. And this is what Jesus said. He said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually dark, uh, uh, and if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Then Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus here is getting really serious about money. Uh, a lot of things that Jesus says is, is, is this good feel like, you know, I, 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 like God has forgiven me uh, and, and God is a friend of mine. And we feel great about it. But then Jesus gets to the money part and it almost gets serious. And suddenly people are like, mm, I'm not sure if I like what Jesus is saying here. But here Jesus is saying, he says that in this world there is a light, And we should live in the light. He says that when your eye is good, you see the light. But when your eye is bad, you live in darkness. So now we know yesterday was May 4th. May the 4th be with you, right? And we all know about the dark side, right? The light and the dark side. And so we know darkness is bad, light is good. So if your eye is good, you can see in the light. But if your eye is dark or bad, then you're in the darkness and it's bad. And he's relating this to money, and he's saying that some people actually think they're in the light, but really they're in the dark. And he's relating this to money. Some people think they're okay, and money is, is not a, doesn't have a control on their life, but ultimately it does. And so Jesus says here, he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. For, for the Bible tells us that the, the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money's evil because money isn't evil. But the love of money is the root of all evil. Jesus here calls money a master. A master. And, and, and I want you to understand this morning that unless you understand the role money plays in your life, it will master you and consume you. Even worse, if you let money master you, then money will pull you away from God and it will cause you to lose hope in God. And even if you lose hope in God, you could even lose your faith. That's the power of money and what money can do. So let me ask you today, are you mastered by money? Is money your master? You don't have to answer, okay, just to let you know. Is money your master? Now, most of us this morning would say, no, money's not my master. But the reality is, how you react to events and circumstances in life will tell us or tell you if money has a mastery over you, if money has a hold in your life. And if money is your master, then this is what's happening in your life. You are living in the tomb of financial bondage. Last week, we talked about the tomb of depression. Today, we're going to talk about the tomb of financial bondage. Now... A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to somebody that I know because they owed me a large sum of money that they had promised me. And we had talked about it for a while and uh, and they said, look, you'll get this large sum of money in April. And so the time came for them to, for the money to supposed to be there. And uh, I was looking and I hadn't heard anything and I didn't uh, see anything. So... I walked into this person's office and just saying, hey, just when am I going to get the, what you promised me? And he looked at me with this shock. He was just like, oh, I forgot. I was like, I didn't say it, but I'm like, how can you forget? I didn't forget at all. How can you forget? He's like, oh, I forgot. So let me go and just figure it out and we'll, we'll get it to you because I promised you. Well, about 15 minutes later, it comes back to me and says, uh, it says, hey, just some unforeseen circumstances. I can't give you that money right now. It's like, we're just going to have to wait for it. Well, as soon as I heard those words, this is what happened in my mind. was like, what am I going to do? Like, like, I was counting on that money. I was counting on that coming in my mind. Suddenly, anxiety and fear started filling my heart. And I was thinking, where's this coming from? But suddenly, it was like this unforeseen thing that happened. And suddenly, I started panicking. We had made some financial decisions this year. and made some sacrifices because I knew I was going to get this money. And suddenly, I'm like, what? What? What's going on? Well, I'm going to get the money. I'm like, what was there to worry about? But suddenly, my heart started to fear. And it was that moment I was like, hmm, I'm not as free from the tomb of financial bondage as I thought I was. Because if money can make me feel like that, then there's something in me that I'm not free enough from. See, with money, we feel in control. We feel in control if we have money. And without money, we feel the worst, right? We fear. We fear bad things would happen without it. Now, can we say the same about God? With God, do we feel in control? And without God, do we fear the worst? Sadly, for many people, they would fear more if they didn't have money than if they didn't have God, which shows that money is their master. Sadly, for a lot of people, they would feel more in control if they had money than if they had God, which shows that money is their master. Remember, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So what I'm going to do this morning, as I was preparing this this topic, and we were planning on talking about this for quite a few weeks. Um, I asked Aaron, who does all our finances in the church, I was like, hey, can you just do me a quick favor? Uh, I I was like, can you send me some statistics uh, on just church giving? And now this isn't a topic about giving and church giving this morning, but I want to show you some things because I'm a stats guy. I like stats. I'm kind of nerdy when it comes like that. I know I don't look like a nerd, but really I am kind of nerdy. Uh, And so, you know, I love the stats. And uh, if I was into baseball, it would be terrible because there's so many stats, but I'm not so thankful but but i love stats and so i asked aaron to send me some some stats just on uh, generation church giving and we've always been just very open about our finances here at generation church and so uh, i know some churches are kind of uh, we don't want to share our finances but I, i want to just share with you this morning Uh, 2018. So if you weren't here in 18, this doesn't apply to you at all. So you're off the hook here, right? Uh, But if you're in here in 18, then no, no, it's all good. So what I'm going to show you, I I asked Aaron, I says, hey, can you send me just uh, the the year end figure for giving Generation Church in 2018? And then I says, and then can you break it down into some categories for me? And so uh, we've got this breakdown here on the screen, and I'm going to show you. So, the first one that you see, uh, it's a little small because there was a lot to put on there, was total giving in 2018 at Generation Church. And the total giving was $161,437. That basically averaged about our average attendance and, and, and the people who call Generation Church home. That averaged about a hundred, uh, what, so one thousand three hundred and forty-five dollars per person, and that includes kids. Which, if the kids are giving that much, then wow, I'm like, we all might have just retire, right? So. So think kids like a hardly anything or if if nothing at all. So that was our, our total income for last year. Some people may think, Wow, that's a big number. Some people you may think, Wow, that's a really low number. So but that has got nothing to do that top number really has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So then I asked her, and I said, can you give me the breakdown of the top three giving families in Generation Church? To see the breakdown of what they give compared to the total number. Uh, and, and so then she gave me this, this, this figure. And this figure came out. The top three giving ha- households uh, in 2018 gave $52,542. Which is 33% of total giving. Which comes to an average of about $6,567.75 per person, including kids. So the top three. And then I asked her, I says, can you then give me the breakdown of the top 10 households in 2018? So the top 10 households, and this includes those top three, so add another seven households on top. The top 10 households at Generation Church giving in 2018 was $104,247, which was 65% of total giving, at an average of $4,169.88 per person, which includes kids. That's some pretty good giving figures right there. You go to any church, and that surpasses average giving in any church in the United States at all. You'll never see numbers like that throughout the whole church. But then I asked Aaron, I says, well, can you give me... The total number of total givers in Generation Church in 2018. So giving households in 2018. Because remember, so like somebody may give like a household. My name's on it. Raquel's name's not on it. So it looks like she doesn't give and I give. But really, it's really both of us. So. Total number of households was 56 givers at Generation Church in 2018. So if 10 gave 65% of the budget, what about the other 46 households? Well, the other 46 households gave $57,190 in giving at Generation Church in 2018 at an average of $602 per household Oh, sorry, per person, including kids. Now, these could be any figures. These could be 30 million, 15 million. It could be 100 million. The figures don't worry me as much. Well, sometimes they worry us, but... When I looked at this, this is what pointed out to me. Why is there such a huge gap between the top givers per person and everybody else? And this is where it gets a little heavy this morning. It's not because those top givers are rich. And it's not because those top givers have way more surplus cash than everybody else. I think it's this. I think they understand that money is a tool to be used for God's purposes. And if there's one thing that you, you you ignore everything else you like. You talk about money. I'm blanking it out. If there's one thing, if you could leave today, know this. Money is a tool to be used for God's purposes. It's the bottom line of today. Even this year, some of you see some of the newsletters that go out. If you don't read them, please read them, you know. But on there, we uh, once a month, we give the giving for the month. And some of you will see that even this year. We've lost some money this year. And I'm not blaming the tax returns at all. But, you know, who knows? But this is what, when I saw these statistics, it started to realize. There are so many people in our church who are stuck in fear in the tomb of financial bondage. And you don't know how to get out. Now, Just to clarify, I made a decision several years ago that I stopped looking at what people gave at Generation Church. So the only person I know who gives is me. And the reason I did this is because I wanted to look at you through the eyes of Jesus, not through the eyes of Alex. And some pastors don't agree with that, but I just made that decision. And so really the only people who know are Aaron. So if she looks at you badly, well, I'm sorry. (laughs) But this is what I believe some of you in the tomb of financial bondage and Jesus is reaching out and he has wanted to roll that stone away so that you could walk out of that tomb and you can walk into freedom, into financial freedom. When we desire to hold on to something more than we are willing to let go, it shows that it masters us. When we want to hold on to tightly because we're fear of losing it instead of allowing it to to, to let go it shows that it masters us. So this morning, this is what we're going to do very quickly. I'm going to give you two stories to give you two examples of two people who are stuck in the, in the tomb of financial bondage. And we could spend like weeks on each of these stories, but we're going to zoom right through them. So the first story is about a woman who had nothing left. If you are in this place today and you are in a place, a position where there is more going out than what's coming in. If, if, if you're in a place where you are drowning in debt and you do not know what to do. If you're in this place uh, 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 and you just have nothing at all, if you are worrying about paying your next BGE bill or your rent and thinking where is the money going to come from, then maybe this story might speak to you a little. It's found in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. And it says this, one day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elijah Elisha said. Tell me what you have in the house. Nothing at all. Except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha says, "Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and your neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from the flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is uh, when it is filled." So she did as she was told. Her husbands kept bring, uh, sorry. Her sons kept bringing jars to her. And she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over. So we have this widow who back in those days, the the women just weren't able to earn enough to keep a family. So she, she now is on her own. There was no life insurance. There was no social security or anything like that back in those days. So she is in dire straits. Not only that, but her husband has obviously left some debt behind. And now she was responsible for that debt. Now there was no bankruptcy that she could just file for bankruptcy. And or anything, the creditor was coming to come and get his money. And because she didn't have any money, then he was going to say, well, I'm going to take your two sons as slaves. I'm going to take your two sons as slaves. So we see here we have a woman who was empty, who was broke, who didn't have a dime to her name. She was drowning in debt. It was like the minimum payments on her credit card bills were more than what she brought in each month. That's not a good place to be, let me just tell you. Her debt was consuming her life. It wasn't now just her her bank balance that was being being, uh, impacted. Now her son's lives were being impacted. The future was dark and it was bleak and she couldn't find a way out. So she comes to Elisha because this woman is at the end of her rope. And she says, help me, Elisha. And this is what Elisha asks her. A simple question. What do you have? What do you have? This was probably the most important question this woman had ever been asked. Because depending on her response, she would either escape from the tomb of financial bondage or she would stay there for the rest of her life. This woman could have responded by getting annoyed. It was clear she had no money. So why is Elisha saying, what do you have? She's like, I need a miracle. I know I don't have anything. She could have responded like that, but she didn't. This question could have driven her over the emotional edge because suddenly she would have realized, I don't have two dimes to rub together. And most of the time, we probably would have responded, Elijah, Elisha, are you dumb or something? I have nothing. That's how I probably would have responded. Why do you think I'm coming to you? I have nothing at all. However, Elisha asks her, what do you have? See, immediately when we hear a question like that, we think of money. Right? We think of money. I don't have any money. And that is what happens when we're in the tomb of financial bondage. Everything centers around money. It all centers around money. Because that's what we think about so often. We think about money. But Elisha wasn't asking her for a bank statement. He wasn't asking her for a credit card. He wasn't asking her to open her piggy bank up. He was asking her, what do you have? And this is how she responded. She says, I don't have hardly anything. But I do have a small jar of olive oil. A small jar of olive oil. I got a few empty pots and pans. They're not new, but that's all I've got. I've got nothing else to my name. And this is what I want you to understand today God is not asking for your cash. God is not asking for your cash. He's not asking you for your credit, for your, for your checkbook or your credit card. This is what God is asking you. He's asking you for your whole life. He's asking for everything. So he's asking you, what do you have? What do you have? See, this woman's olive oil on its own was worthless. She could have sold it, got a couple of pennies, but it wouldn't have paid the debt. It was not enough to sell and make the kind of money she needed. Plus, she needed it to cook because without it, she probably would have st- wouldn't have been able to cook and she may have starved. But remember, the question was not, what do you have of value? The question was just, what do you have? And so often, when we think about giving and we think about generosity, we think, well, I need to give something of value. But God isn't asking you to give a value. He's just saying, what do you have? What do you have? Her jars and her oil were meaningless in the fight against death, but they were meaningful in the fight against financial bondage. Let me just say that again so you understand. Her oil and her jars were meaningless in the fight against death. They couldn't do any debt. They couldn't do anything to cancel the debt. But they were so meaningful in her escaping the tomb of financial bondage. See, the focus should never be on what we don't have. The focus should always be on what we do have. Generosity starts with bringing what you have. And then when you bring what you have... The miracle begins. When you stop bringing what you have, the miracle stops. So this lady, she had this olive oil, and Elisha says, pour it into jars and bring as many empty jars as you can and, and keep pouring. And so she's got this olive oil, and it keeps, and it doesn't run out. It's just like, whoa, check this magic trick out. It just, just doesn't run out. And she, she's pouring in the jars. And suddenly, what was worthless becomes valuable. So what do you have? If you want to see a miracle in your life and you want to see a miracle in your finances, start bringing to Jesus what you have. Maybe you don't have money. But what else do you have? Back in the old temple days, it wasn't money that they came and tithed. It was animals and crops and wheat and all this sort of stuff. Fragrances, what they had. And so often we're so fixated on money, but Jesus is asking you, what do you have to bring to me? God can do more with your little than you can ever do with your abundance. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus asked the disciples, go see what we have. And they came back and says, Jesus, like you better send everybody away because I found a little boy's lunchbox. You know, we had this Spider-Man lunchbox, and in there was some, some cuties, you know. There's, they're actually delicious, by the way, even though kids eat them. There's a little juice box, and then he found some little fish, and then he found some little loaves of bread. And they're laughing like, ha, <laughs> Jesus, there's no way. And Jesus says, that's enough. That's enough. That's all we have. Okay. And what happens next? Man, they have a feast for a king because of the miracle working power of Jesus. When you find yourself with nothing, trapped in the tomb of financial bondage, then start looking around and figuring out what do I have that I can bring to Jesus? For he is the miracle worker. You just have to be the willing participant. See, the reason, The problem is some of you, you, you may be in such financial dire straits that no one can help you except for Jesus. And there are times in our life where we need a miracle. Yeah, we, 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 we may need a financial advisor to help us, but sometimes the financial advisor can look and say, like, I just don't know what you're going to have to do. Far for bankruptcy. But Jesus comes along and says, no, what do you have? I can make that what is worthless valuable. And that's what he did to the woman here. And very quickly, the second story. Most of us are not like this woman. Most of us are not drowning so much in debt and with hardly anything that we cannot rub two dimes together. So often, though, we think we are because we have a a scarcity tendency about us meaning we think we only have a little so this is what we do with our little we hold on to it tight so it never goes because we're fearful of letting go but the reality is most of us have something and so then this parable that Jesus gives that I'm going to share with you speaks to most of us this morning and this is found in Matthew chapter 25 and I'm going to read the whole parable it's it's a little long so just bear with me as I read it And it says this, Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money with them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. The servant who had entrusted, he'd entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who would receive two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've earned two more. The master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you just at least deposit my money in the bank? At least you could have got some interest on it. Then he ordered. Take the money from the servant, from this servant, and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gashing of teeth. Well, that is a loaded parable, and we could talk for weeks on that parable, and we could uh, could agree and disagree with a lot of things in this parable. But when you read parables of Jesus, it's always good to ask one question. Who am I in this parable? So there's four people in the parable. There's the master, there's a servant with five bags of silver, a servant with two bags of silver, and a servant with one bag of silver. So ask yourself, who am I in this parable? Now let me give you a clue. You're not the master, okay? That is actually Jesus, right? He says the kingdom of heaven is like he's the master, right? So just before you got like, well, I'm the master. Who are you, five, two, or one? This is what I noticed about this parable. Not everyone has equal assets, and that's okay. Sometimes people get bent out of shape, people who've got more money. They they, they get envious, or they judge people who have less money. It's not about how much you have. It's about what you have. We've been in our lives uh, uh, throughout our marriage. There have been moments where we have struggled to rub two dimes together. And there have been other times where we've had an abundance. Doesn't mean that God loves me any less. Doesn't mean that I'm any less of a Christian. It's just there are seasons in life where you have more and have less. This is also what we know from this parable. What God has given, he desires to be used for his purposes. Notice he did not give the servants the money to use as they please. He says, use it for my purposes. Increase my business. The business is the kingdom of God. See, God expects you to release what you have and not hold on what you, what you have. For what you have has been given for his purposes. When we hold on to what we have, we are ultimately saying this. If I lose it, I may not get it back. If I lose it, The Master will not give me any more. And if you believe that about your Heavenly Father, you believe a false narrative about God. Because the ultimate thing is this He is your source, He is your provider. The Bible is full of stories of God being our provider. So, who is your Master? Who is your Master? Can you trust God to be your master or do you like money being your master? Let me ask you another question, can God trust you with the resources he has given to you? I think it's so interesting that in this parable, it wasn't the servant who was the richest who gets condemned it was the servant who was the poorest because he had this scarcity to scarcity mentality well i need to keep it what if i lose it what if i lose my one pea bag of silver what's the what's the master going to do see we hold on because we fear yet god wants us to be bold because we know when we are bold for his purposes there is nothing to be feared The tomb is full of fear, but Jesus is rolling the stone away to show that there is nothing really to be feared. Fear of money will cause you to think the worst and not see the miracles that God can do. See, if God can't trust you with a little, why is he going to trust you with more? And this isn't a sermon about prosperity or anything like that. It's just the reality. And this, this could be for, for, for money. It could also be for friends. It could be for a, a, a life partner. It could be for uh, just uh, in church or, or in your career. If you can't be trusted with the little, why do you think you're going to be trusted with more? This is also what I noticed from this parable. God doesn't punish us for financial mistakes. We're so fearful of making financial mistakes. God doesn't punish us for financial mistakes. He just doesn't like financial hoarding. He doesn't like financial hoarding. And so often we keep, we're like, it's mine. I can't lose it. I'm so fearful of losing it. That's the definition of a hoarder right there. This is also what I know. You can be the richest person in the world but still in the tomb of financial bondage if you're not willing to let go what God has given. It's not about how much you have. It's about what you're willing to do with what you have. So who are you in these two stories? Are you the woman with nothing? Are you the servant with a lot or the servant with some or the servant with a small amount? Notice in both of these stories The correct action in both of them was this, to do something. Whether it was to bring what you have or to use what you have. Not once are we told to use as you like. And this is the hardest thing to understand if we are trapped in the tomb of financial bondage. Because we ultimately believe a lie. And this lie keeps us in this tomb. And the lie is this, what I have is mine. What I work for, I earned. What I created, I made. What is around me, I own it. That is a lie and that will keep you locked up in a tomb of financial bondage for the rest of your life. Where the truth is this. What you have is not yours, it's the Lord's. He gave it, He owns it, and He supplies it. And He will continue to give it, He will continue to own it, and He will continue to supply it when you say, This is what I have. Money will want to tell you that you are the master. But really, it's the master. But when you discover that Jesus is the master, and we are the servant, and all we have is his, when we use our resources for his purposes and bring what we have, then the result is always a miracle. It's always a miracle. And miracles always result in some kind of increase. So as we close today, in a moment, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you a question. And the question is this, what is God asking you to bring? What is God asking you to bring? In a moment, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to be brave and get out of your seats and come to these boards that we've been filling out throughout this series at the front and then on the easels at the back. And I want you to write on there. I'm asking you to put your name. So, And I don't know your handwriting. And if it's like me, no one can read your handwriting anyway, right? But I want you to write on there. I, I, as a declaration, God, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. What are you asking me to bring? But before we pray, I want to just give you a quick story of my own life. In 2012, we bought our first home. It was. More of a fixer-upper than we thought. Anyone else experienced that before? We knew there was some stuff that we wanted to do. So we did it. And we were like, well, we might as well just do it now. Otherwise, we'll never end up doing it, which is true also. So we go to the kitchen. We did all the floors. We poured ceilings down. You know, we, 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 we went all out. But we didn't have the money to do it. And we just bought a house, so, you know, we didn't have much surplus cash anyway. So, we put some stuff on some credit cards. And I had a plan that we would just pay it off. In six months or something. Well, $45,000 later, a revolving credit card debt, I got to the place and realized... Man, I'm in the tomb of financial bondage. I woke up every morning and I, all I thought about was money. I went to work, thought about how am I even going to pay this back? When we go to the supermarket or go out to eat, I'd be resenting the fact that we had to do this because we had so much debt. How are we ever going to pay it? And And it's not so much about giving because I've always been a giver and we've always given to the church because it was like, beat to me as my parents. You give 10% of the church, so we always did it. But I realized my giving was done out of a legalistic kind of view of, I give because that's what the Bible tells me to do. But anything else I can have, I'm going to hold to myself. About 18 months later, Suddenly, it became manageable. And I started seeing God do amazing things. I started realizing I need to manage my money better, but I also need to start using my money better. And I started realizing it's not mine to keep, but it's mine to release. And suddenly, this change happened. And like I said, I'm a stats guy. So I had a spreadsheet. Exactly knew how much was being paid out and, and, and reducing that debt. Suddenly, it was just like overnight, the debt was gone. I don't know how. I don't know how we afforded to pay that debt off, but suddenly it was gone. And this is what I started seeing God do. I started seeing God multiply what we had. And God giving and giving and giving. And the more God gave, the more I started realizing the tendency is to keep. I started realizing, no, I got to give. I got to give. And the more God started to give, more I started to give. And suddenly, I found myself free of the tomb of financial bondage. And I remember us doing a financial peace class here and sitting here. And hearing all the stories and sitting there thinking, man, we're in financial freedom. We have a mortgage, but you know, that's a 30 year rolling stone away on that one. <laughs> but we're in financial freedom. And I realized it was because we changed our view of money. It's not mine, it's his. He gives it to me so I can use it for his purposes. And then in return, he supplies all my needs. And that's what the Bible says. He supplies all your needs according to his riches in glory. It's rich up there. And so if you're in that place today where you are stuck, just start looking at what you have and start releasing your hand. You'll see the miracle that God will do. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning. Lord, that you take care of every aspect of your life. You told us not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. You told us to look at the birds of the air and how they don't go hungry. You told us to look at the lilies of the field. And see how they are clothed. And Lord, you promised to us that you would supply all of our needs. You would meet us in our moment of need. You would give unto us. And all you ask of us, Lord, is that we'll just open our hands. And so this morning, Father, I, I, I want to thank you, God, for the incredible generosity that we see here at Generation Church and the people who have released their hands uh, of, of their finances. And, Lord, how you have kept us and you have provided and you have given us. And we've seen miracle after miracle of uh, you just given onto this as a, onto this church. And we thank you, Lord, for the faithful servants who have given. But Father, this morning, I pray for those who are like the widow who have nothing. God, or those who are like the servant with one bag of silver, who are so fearful of letting go because they don't know what tomorrow may hold. Father, I pray, Lord, that you'll speak into their hearts, that you'll speak to them, that they will start to realize what they have to bring to you. And in turn, Lord, that you will start to do the miraculous in their life. And they will start to see, Lord, glimmer in the darkness. And they'll start to see the tu- the stone of the tomb of financial bondage roll in a way that they will walk out. And they'll suddenly find themselves in freedom. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Now I ask You can stay with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, but if you want to get out of your seat and come and ride on one of these boards, then let's just spend just a couple of minutes just doing that this morning. This is what I know about Jesus. Jesus isn't wanting to make you rich. There's a lot of people on TV who will try to tell you that. Jesus wants to transform you so that you are free. And there's a big difference because you could be poor but still free. It's not about how much you have. It's all about what you have. So who is your master? Is it money or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? I know who I want to bank on and invest in every single time. Because money will fail me and leave me fearful. But God will never fail me. And he'll fill me with peace and joy and love. So this week, go knowing that he is your provider. He is your source. That he has more resources than anyone in this world. And if you rely on him, then he will make sure that you're not left behind. But what it takes, it takes opening your hand. So find opportunities this week to do that. Whether it's taking someone out for lunch or paying for their lunch. Or bringing something from home that you have. But find opportunities to say, no, it's not mine. It's God's for his purposes. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week for Mother's Day. Remember, Mother's Day next week. Don't forget that. And so we're going to have a great service here next week for Mother's Day. So invite your mother, bring your mother. And uh, and if you're a mother, make sure you join us next week. God bless you.